Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Produce, Prophecy, and Provocation. All right, and so last week, if you were with us, we looked at three groups that made a decision to depart from the truth. Three groups. Verse five, it was faithless Israel. Verse six, it was the fallen angels. Verse seven was the men of Sodom. So this week, we're not gonna look at three groups. When we get to verse 11, we're gonna look at three individuals. Three individuals who departed from the truth, and they were a farmer, a false prophet, and a Levite. And so a farmer who approached God arrogantly, he brought an offering of produce to God, and then we're gonna look at a false prophet who actually prophesied blessings over the people of God. And then finally, we're gonna look at a Levite who had the audacity to provoke the appointed leaders of God, all right? And so what do pro, uh, produce, prophecy, and provocation have in common? Well, three men, you probably guessed it by now, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. All right, so we're gonna get to their stories uh, in verse 11 in a little while. Before we do, we're verse by verse church. We gotta hit verses eight, nine, and 10. And in those verses, Jude is gonna give us, the Christian community, more uh, distinguishing marks, more characteristics of false teachers. All right, so right now, if you have your Bibles, either electronically or book form, and you're looking at Jude 8, can you say amen? And I want you to just look for right, right now, just look at the first four words in Jude 8. It's every word, every phrase, so important in the Bible. He says, yet in like manner, all right? And so that phrase, yet in like manner, is very important because that phrase links what Jude has already said, <laughs> yet in like manner, to what now he's gonna say. In other words, in the same manner as faithless Israel in verse five, the fallen angels in verse six, and the men of Sodom in verse seven, yet in like manner now in verse eight, he says these people, in the context that's the false teachers who had infiltrated the churches in the first century, these people also, relying on their dreams, their dreams, everybody please look at me, be careful when you hear a teacher say, I had a, a dream from God and in the dream, God gave me new revelation. If you ever heard the, hear the term new revelation, I have one word of caution for you. Run, thank you, you guys are getting it. There is no new revelation. We have the faith that was once for all delivered, past tense, to the saints. It's the apostles' doctrine is recorded in the New Testament for us. And so often these guys, their dreams contradict what it says in the Bible. And man, don't listen to these guys. All right, and so back to verse eight. In like manner, these people, these false teachers, also relying on their dreams, do three things. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. All right, so here's three more characteristics of false teachers if you're taking notes. Number one, they defile the flesh. Number two, they reject authority. 
And number three, they blaspheme in the original language that means to speak evil of, revile, slander. They blaspheme the glorious ones. And if you interpret that in the context of verse nine, it's talking about angelic beings. All right, and so follow the flow here. Don't take a verse out of context, teach whatever you want. How many of you guys know you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say? Keep it in the context, see the flow. All right, and so yet in like manner, in other words, just like the men of Sodom in verse seven, engaged in sexual immorality and defiled their flesh, so these false teachers, Jude would say, and so many false teachers are immoral, so these false teachers also engage in sexual immorality and also defile their flesh. Yet in like manner, right, just like the fallen angels of verse six rejected God's authority, right, and, and they left the boundaries that he had set for, for sexuality, and actually what they did is they infiltrated the boundaries that God had set up for sexu sexuality. In the same way, the false teachers also reject God's authority, and they also reject the boundaries that God has set in the word of God for sexuality. And if you're new to church and new to the Bible, and all this is new to you, and you're wondering, well, what, what are the boundaries uh, for sexual activity? I wanna encourage you not to get the answer from our culture. Don't allow the culture to shape you. Allow the Bible to shape you. And the answer in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is marriage. That's the boundaries for sexual activity, marriage. And just like faithless Israel, right, blasphemed, reviled the glorious one, the angels, you say, how in the world did Faithless Israel do that. Well, you remember, Moses received the law, right, from God on Mount Sinai. The Bible says, through the administration of angels. Okay, and so faithless Israel, because they disobeyed God's law, they defied God's law, they, not only did they blaspheme the Lord, but in a sense, they reviled, they blasphemed God's holy angels. And right now, if you're listening to me, say amen. So in the same way, yet in like manner, the false teachers, they also revile unholy angels. They revile unholy angels, thinking they have some kind of personal authority over Satan and demons. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that the practice of speaking directly to Satan or demons in prayer, you know, to rebuke them or to bind them, it's wrong. And I go on and on about this subject. It's very concerning to me because I see it in evangelical churches. But let me just refer you to an article like I always do, gotquestions.org. What is warfare prayer? What is warfare prayer? I want you to be cognizant of this because this happens in a lot of churches. I'm gonna read a little bit from the article. What is warfare prayer? Answer, warfare prayer is a prayer technique, and by the way, you see this in a lot of hyper-charismatic churches. It's a prayer technique that focuses on using prayer as a weapon to do battle with the spiritual forces of evil, especially in regard to one's daily life, habits, and struggles. Almost always, warfare prayer is just what it sounds like. Prayers prayed for the purpose of waging war against the unseen spiritual enemy who is bent on making us unhappy by thwarting our dreams and desires. Common warfare prayers include many I statements. 
Maybe you've heard this. You know, I declare, I decree, I bind, I overrule, I smash, I rebuke. Some warfare prayers recommend speaking to Satan in direct address. Ladies and gentlemen, you know, this is characteristic of, of their prayers. And he says in the article, this is not biblical at all. Our prayers are to be directed to God alone. The Bible never tells us to rebuke Satan or to speak to him and his demons. Now, of course, you guys know there, there's the example of Jesus and the apostles, specifically the apostle Paul, and they did speak directly to demons before they cast those demons out. That's a totally different subject. We're talking about the way Christians pray. Okay, and so the rebuking of Satan is done by the Lord, not us. It says, and you'll see it in a moment in verse nine, even the archangel Michael did not himself dare to condemn Satan uh, for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so the biblical instruction is to submit to God, resist the devil, James 4, 7, not to demand things from Satan. So I just wanna put that on your radar and tell you, please, please, please be very careful. Okay, so back to the text. In contrast to the false teachers who were, who were reviling angelic beings, Jude now points to a certain angel who would never do that. I want you to look now at verse nine. Let's see the flow. He says in verse nine, but when the archangel Michael, contending, fighting with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. But look at this. He, Michael, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, some of your translations, a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you, all right? So in order to expose the false teacher's fallacy of reviling angelic beings, Jude now points to this whole amazing story about how Michael and the devil fought for the body of Moses, okay, the body of Moses, his corpse, that means he's dead. What does Deuteronomy have to say about the death of Moses? Look at this. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but look at this, no one knows the place of his burial to this day. And so Moses is buried in a secret place. Now according to what Jude just said in verse nine, apparently God picked Michael the archangel to bury the body of Moses. Now if you go with us to Israel, um, we'll take you to the lowest point on the earth, and that is the Dead Sea. And you can bring your bathing suit, and if you want to, you can float in the Dead Sea. And some of you say, I can't float. You know, I, I always try my backyard pool, and I always sink like a rock. Well, I guarantee you, you will float in the Dead Sea. Just make sure you don't get your face or your head or your ears or your eyes, especially your mouth, in, in, in that water, because you're gonna be in trouble, okay? And so we're gonna stand there, and we're gonna look out at the Dead Sea. We're gonna look east, and we're gonna see modern-day Jordan, all these arid, dry mountains, desert land. Well, I don't know if you knew this, but part of modern-day Jordan was ancient Moab. And so you'll see, if you go with us to Israel, the general area where Michael the archangel buried Moses, but no one knows the exact spot. All right, so here's the million-dollar question. Why did Michael bury Moses in a secret place? Why? Well, the Bible's silent, so all we can do is come up with a bunch of theories. 
All right, so here's a plausible theory right here. And that is that Michael buried Moses' body in a secret place to help Israel stay focused on the Lord and not a dead man. This is what we do so often. We get all excited and we venerate and we honor, right, too much um, dead people from the past. And so God knew that Israel struggled with idolatry and he didn't want to give them something to venerate. In other words, to prevent Israel from doing what the Egyptians did in their history. What did they do? They embalmed the bodies. And so to prevent Israel from embalming the body of Moses and setting up his gravesite like some kind of religious shrine, and then you know the people of Israel making special pilgrimages to the gravesite of Moses to see his embalmed body or whatever, God says, no, Michael, I want you to bury him in a, in a secret place. What's the lesson for us? How many of you guys believe the Bible is applicable for today? Here's the lesson for us. And that is, there are many dead people from the past that we can read about. I love it, I read biographies of Christian people in the past, it inspires me. So we can read about and we can be inspired. But ladies and gentlemen, there is only one person that we should worship and that we should venerate and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. One person, Jesus. And by the way, he didn't stay in the grave. He rose the third day. This is why we make such a big deal about the Lord. And so never forget, by the way, God's message to Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's meaning in that for this point here. And so while they were on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, Peter, James, and John fell asleep and Jesus was transfigured. Do you remember this? And what was really on the inside of Christ came shining out, and that is his deity. 100% God, 100% man. Don't get that wrong. If you get that wrong, you get everything wrong. He was 100% God, 100% man, and his deity was shining forth from his humanity, right? And, and all of a sudden, Peter wakes up and he sees Jesus transfigured, lighting up the side of the mountain. And by the way, we'll take you to Mount Hermon too, way up in the northern part near Lebanon. And, 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 and he saw Jesus, right? And then he saw Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus. And Peter's all excited, he doesn't know what to say, but he's always talking, and so, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let me make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, right? Some kind of tent, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna camp out, you know, whatever. And then all of a sudden, here comes the Shekinah glory of God, the glory cloud. And God the Father speaks to Peter. And sometimes I wonder if the glory Shekinah cloud took the form of a big finger from heaven pointing at Jesus. This, not Moses, not Elijah, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to Christ. He's where it's at. Let's be a, a church. Can we agree on this? Let's be a church that's all about Jesus. All about him. He's alive. He's well. And he's coming back. And then what happened was Moses and Elijah, poof, they vanished. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he remained. And he'll always remain. King of kings and Lord of lords. If you've never made him the Lord of your life, you need to bow to his authority. Now, let's go back to the scene. There's Michael, he's burying the body of Moses. 
I don't know if he had a shovel. He probably doesn't need one. He's an archangel, but he's digging the grave, right? And he looks over his shoulder and there's Satan. And Satan indicates that he wants the body. And both angels right then knew it's about to go down. Now, can you imagine having tickets to this fight? I mean, it was like the battle of the ages. In one corner, you have Michael the archangel, arch, A-R-C-H, it means chief, the chief angel. This is why we believe, most likely, Michael was the highest ranking holy angel, still is, in heaven. And then, by the way, Michael's name means like God. Michael, what a great name, right? You guys are really slow, what's my name? How many of you guys are named Mike? Let me see your hands. Let's give it up for the mics, yes. Like God. Let's pray that all of us will be conformed to the image of Christ, right? And that we'll all end well by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in one corner you have Michael. In the other corner you have Lucifer, right? He's called, and I quote, the anointed guardian cherub. Probably the most magnificent angel God ever created until sin was found in him. And after his attempted coup d'etat, and after he got the boot, he, Lucifer, becomes the highest ranking demon in the universe. His name, current name, Satan, means adversary. Okay, so in one corner, you have the highest ranking holy angel. In the other corner, the highest ranking demon. In one corner, the one who's like God. In the other corner, the one who's adverse to God. And man, they go at it. Now, who do you think won the battle? Yeah, Michael. Michael won the battle. Why? Because he's the one who ended up with the body and he's the one who buried Moses in a secret place and didn't allow the enemy to do whatever the enemy, evil thing the enemy wanted to do with Moses' body. What's the point here? The point here, ladies and gentlemen, is that holiness always defeats wickedness. Good always defeats evil. Don't allow the culture to shape you into their form. Let the Holy Spirit shape you through the word of God. You may be in the minority. You may, you know, pastor, I'm trying to be holy as God is holy in the power of the Holy Spirit and people laugh at me and mock me or whatever. I feel like I'm, you know, um, going against the, the culture. Listen, just stay where you're at because you're on a winning team. You're on the winning team. Even though, you're the, even though you're in the minority, you're on the winning team because one day the Lord Jesus Christ is gonna come back and he's going to set up a righteous kingdom. Can you imagine? The whole world is gonna be righteous. It's gonna be a wonderful day. Michael defeated the devil in the power of the Lord. And by the way, in your own spiritual warfare, this is how you're gonna defeat the devil, not by praying to him or talking to him or rebuking him or doing whatever. No, you're gonna do it as you submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ or filled with the Holy Spirit, put on the whole armor of God, and you let God fight your battles. That's how you win, and you continue on to continue on with the Lord. And so all this right is fascinating. But what's the main point? Because the whole thing with Michael and the devil fighting it's fascinating and we try to make it the main point. It's not the main point, it's a subpoint. What's the main point in the text with the flow? The text, the main point is, in contrast to false teachers who revile angelic beings, Michael, verse nine, end of verse nine, did not. <laughs> 
he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. All right, and so if Michael, ladies and gentlemen, listen, if Michael refused to slander or speak evil of or revile the most wicked being in the universe, you and I have no right to revile or speak evil or slander anybody in any position of authority ever. We don't do it. We don't do it in our human government and we don't do it in the heavenly government like false teachers do. We don't do this. Now concerning the human realm, look at what Paul said to Titus. Paul, writing to the pastor, Titus, who's overseeing a church, and by the way, this is a church right here, even though it's 2,000 years later, this is prescriptive for us. This is absolutely a direct command for all of us in this room right now and all of you guys who are watching. Remind them, Christian community, to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Do you see that? Submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. This whole thing about defunding the police, right? or rioting, or burning, it's all wrong. We should love and support and pray for our police that have our backs and protect us. They're not doing it to get rich. They're certainly not doing it to get rich. Okay, and so we don't, here's the submissive Christian spirit, because we can be rebels if we wanna be rebels, but then we're just following Lucifer. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. Now here's where it gets convicting for the church. You ready for this? To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. Some of you guys are brilliant. You're apologists, you know the word of God, and you love going toe to toe with people. But the problem is, you're not gentle, and so you're winning the argument, but you're losing the person. What good is that? This is not our spirit as Christians. To speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. And I think, wow, what a great reminder for us over the next two weeks and two days, I think. Because we all know, right before an election, what happens? The emotions get stronger and stronger, right? And what happens is we're tempted to speak evil of, to slander, to revile people who don't agree with us politically. Ladies and gentlemen, take that passage, and for the next 7, 14, 15, 16, 17, 16 or 17 days, whatever it is, put it in a prominent place. So you'll see it every single day especially put it next to your social media accounts. <laughs> You'll see it every single day, right? And be, be very, very careful. Remember, you're, you're, you're representing the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, should we, and you guys can answer out loud, just talk back to me. Should we have strong convictions, yes or no? Should we civilly debate issues? Civilly debate issues, yes or no? Should we speak the truth in love, yes or no? Should we go out and vote biblical values? Yes. Please, please, you're a free American. 
extra, you know how many millions of people around the world don't have the right that you have? Mail in that vote, go on Tuesday, but vote your biblical values. But do we have the right to speak evil of anybody? No, that's not us, that's not our camp, that's not what we do, we're followers of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, he says in verse 10, but these people, these false teachers, they blaspheme, they speak evil of, they revile, all that they don't understand, spiritual things. And they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, okay? And so what's going on in verse 10? They're the devoid of the spirit, they're dominated by their flesh, they're living carnal lives, and so what happens? You reap what you sow. And so in the end, they will be judged by the Lord. Verse 11, woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain, here it is, they abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and they perish in Korah's rebellion. All right, so here's three Old Testament figures and Jude is saying, all right, what do false teachers look like? All right, so false teachers resemble three people. Cain, the farmer, Balaam, the false prophet, and Korah, the Levite. That's what he says in verse 11. Woe to them, they have walked in the way of Cain. All right, so let's start with the farmer. Let's start with Cain. What is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is approaching God in our own way instead of in his prescribed way. That's the way of Cain. And so Adam and Eve's first two sons, Cain and Abel, they, these guys could not have been more different. I mean, one, Abel, right, he was a keeper of the sheep, he was a shepherd. Cain was a tiller of the ground, he was a farmer. One had a heart for God, the other did not. And one day they both brought offerings to the Lord, and their offerings, not only were they different, their offerings were completely Different, Cain brought an offering of fruit from the ground. He brought, listen to this, produce to the Lord. Abel brought a firstborn of his flock and it's fat. He brought an animal sacrifice. And look at how God responded to these offerings. It says that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, how many of you guys know God's a good God? Right, and so for God to have no regard for Cain's offering tells me that God had already shared with the boys the prescribed way to approach him. And Cain, right, brings produce, last line, Cain was very angry, uh-oh, and his face fell. All right, so why in the world would God accept one man's offering and not the other? Was it because God loved shepherds and he hates farmers? <laughs> I hope not. That's not the reason. The reason that God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering has to do with how a sinner approaches a holy God. You gotta get this. If you're with me now, say amen. How, do, how does a sinner approach a holy God? All right, so, so think through this with me. Cain and Abel knew the story, right, of mom and dad. And what happened to mom and dad after they ate the forbidden fruit? Right, they all of a sudden, they knew they're naked. And so what did they do? They went off and they, they grabbed some fig leaves and they sewed the fig leaves together to cover themselves and they went and hid from God. And God takes the initiative. Because God's a good God, he always takes the initiative. And he goes and he finds them. And just like God did not accept Cain's offering of fruit, produce, so he, he didn't accept 
The way Adam and Eve were dressed, he didn't accept these fig leaves. And what did the Lord do? The Lord personally went out himself and he sacrificed an animal. God made a blood sacrifice and he used the animal skin to cover the first couple. Hebrews 9.22 is super clear. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what God's word says. And so Cain invented his own way of approaching God. Instead of bringing an animal sacrifice, Cain brought produce to the Lord. And the produce is a picture of approaching God through our own works, our own efforts. One of my favorite commentators, John Phillips, said this, Cain was unteachable. He refused to approach God on God's terms. That is, shedding the blood of a lamb. Instead, he invented a system. This is what cult leaders do. He invented a system of religion based on his own ideas and furthered by his own efforts. And of course, you guys know the story because the Lord did not have regard for his offering. Cain gets really upset. He's jealous. And what did he do to his brother? He killed him. Jude says these false teachers have walked in the way of Cain. What does that mean? That means they've invented their own way to God that's based on works, human effort. And that's the way of every man-made religion and cult. Ladies and gentlemen, religion and cults say do. True Christianity says done because Jesus Christ said it is finished, paid in full. He paid the price completely through his blood sacrifice. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. You and I deserve death, but he died in our place. It's the substitutionary atonement, which is a doctrine that's being taught less and less in churches today, but it's the gospel. Christ died for us. He shed his blood so that we could be forgiven because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How can we be reconciled to God? John the Baptist told us, he looked at Jesus and he said, look everybody, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. People say, oh, that's so narrow-minded, yep, sure is, because my Jesus is the only one who gave a blood sacrifice. He's the only way that we can be forgiven. And so the next person Jude points to is Balaam, the false prophet. And it says now in verse 11, that not only did they walk in the way of Cain, they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. All right, so what is Balaam's error? Here it is in a nutshell. It's being more concerned about wealth than about the welfare of God's people. And so what happens in this story is the children of Israel have wandered around for the better part of 40 years, and now they're ready to go into the promised land. All right, take two. <laughs> this time, not like last week, from the southern border, Kadesh Barnea, and now they've wrapped around to the east side of the Dead Sea and they're coming up around the north end, eventually cross across the Jordan River into Jericho, right? And so they go into the land of the Moabites and they camp out. 
And the Bible says that they're just massive. They just cover the earth. And Balak, the king of Moab, looks out and he sees all these people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he freaks out. And he's like, they're gonna do to us what they already did to the Amorites. They're gonna kill us. They're gonna defeat us. What do I do? Oh, I got an idea. I'm gonna hire a prophet, a guy named Balaam, and he's gonna come and he's gonna curse Israel and then I'll be able to defeat them. So he sends his entourage to go see Balaam. Balaam, by the way, was a false prophet. He wasn't a true prophet. He practiced divination. He was a quote unquote soothsayer and he's greedy. And the thought of being paid for his religious services was so enticing and so tempting to him, all this money that he's gonna make, right? And there's a problem. He inquires of the Lord whether or not he should go and curse Israel, and what do you think God says? No, I curse my people. <laughs> no, don't go. And so now, so far so good, Balaam goes to Balak's entourage, and he says, sorry guys, I'm not gonna go. They go back to Balak. Balak won't take no for an answer. He sends them back to Balaam, and they ask him again, hey, would you reconsider, would you come, would you do what Balak wants you to do, would you curse Israel, and at that point, the problem, I mean, sorry, the prophet, he makes a big, big mistake. Here's the mistake that he makes. He decides, I'm gonna ask God again about the matter. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. If you want something really bad, and you're praying for it, and God tells you no, don't keep praying for it. Because the worst thing that could happen is for God to say, fine, have it your way. That works at Burger King, right? <laughs> Doesn't work in, in our lives. I mean, whose way is better, my way, your way, or God's way? God's way. But Balaam is asking, and God sees the greed, he sees the stubbornness, he goes, okay, fine, have it your way. Go with them, but don't say anything unless I tell you. And Balaam jumps on his donkey. You remember this from Sunday school? And so he's on his donkey. He's all excited. I got a big old payday waiting for me. And he's on his way to go see Balak, right? And all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord stands in front of the donkey, sword drawn. The donkey sees the angel. Balaam can't see the angel. And all of a sudden, the donkey freaks out. He runs out into a field. Balaam doesn't know what's going on. He takes his staff. Bam, bam. He starts beating his donkey. Get back on the road. The donkey goes back on the road and all of a sudden there's a wall and the angel of the Lord is there again and, and the donkey freaks out and rams the prophet, the false prophet's foot up against the wall. Ow! Takes his staff, bam, bam, he's beating his donkey again. The donkey's still moving forward. Now all of a sudden there's the angel of the Lord again and now the donkey's like, I'm done with this. He just plops down, right? Like stubborn as a donkey. Balaam's upset, he can't see any of this. Bam, bam! And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey said, and I quote, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Oh. Now there's only, thing, there's only one thing more insane than a talking donkey. <laughs> and that is a mad prophet who talks back to his donkey. See, if, if, if a donkey starts talking to me, I'm gone. Right? I'm just like, I'm like. And, and, and Balaam, it is funny, Balaam says to his donkey, if I had a sword, I'd kill you. 
and you'll wanna say, Balaam, why in the world would you wanna, think this through, man, why in the world would you wanna kill your donkey? It's a talking donkey. <laughs> Forget Balak's money. You have a talking donkey? Take it on the road, you'll be a millionaire, right? He's just not thinking straight. So to make a long story short, he stands, do you think he curses Israel? No, he blesses Israel over and over and over again. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear me. Do not give in to the growing antisemitism in our world today. You and I, as Christians, we need to stand with Israel we need to bless Israel. That's what we need to do. And he blesses Israel. Now, Balak, the king of Moab, you think he's happy or mad? He's ticked off, right? And so, Balaam now is thinking, he's gonna kill me. So as a way to appease, you can read all about this later in, in Numbers, um, but as a way to appease the king, Balaam now says, all right, king, I got a new plan. Cursing Israel didn't work, but this will work. Send all your beautiful women from Moab into the camp of Israel. Have them seduce the men. And the next thing you know, the men of Israel will commit sexual immorality and then they'll sacrifice and worship the Moabite gods. And you know what's sad? The plan worked. And the beautiful women came in, they seduced the men, the men committed sexual immorality, the next thing you know, they're sacrificing to the gods. And the next thing you know, the Lord steps in, he judges his people with a plague, and 24,000 Israelites died as a result of Balaam's false counsel. What was his error? His error was that Balaam put wealth over the welfare of God's people and he paid for it because when you get to Numbers 31, the children of Israel caught up to him. Look, there he is, Balaam, the false prophet. They run him down, they strike him with the sword. And I'm just wondering, okay, I'm kinda going outside the Bible right now, but I'm just wondering as he's laying on a field in his pool of blood and maybe the bag of gold that Balak gave him is right there, I wonder if this greedy false prophet looked at the bag of gold as he's bleeding out thinking, is it worth it? Is it worth it? It's not worth it. He died and Jude says, false teachers, and I quote, abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They did it, false teachers did it in the first century. They're still doing it today. False teachers use religion to satisfy their greed. And so many of these guys, they live the lifestyle, the lavish, extravagant lifestyle of the rich and famous, right? and they have little to no accountability, and then what do they do? They put wealth above the welfare of God's people, and like Balaam, they're gonna be judged. And so we need, as a local church, to be aware of these things and not be duped. The final example, the last Old Testament figure Jude pointed to, and I'll, I'll fly through this, okay, is not just Cain, not just Balaam, but Korah the Levite. That's the last few words in verse 11, it says that they, false teachers, perished in Korah's rebellion. All right, so what lesson do we learn from Korah? Here it is. When people defy God's ordained authority, 
it doesn't end well for them. So Korah, who was he? He was a Levite. He had a great job. He had a really important ministry. It's called set up and tear down. <laughs> this guy was a Levite. That means he was responsible with a bunch of other guys for the transportation of the holy items in the tabernacle. This is like wonderful, but it wasn't enough for him. He wanted the position. He wanted the title. He wanted the acclaim of people. He wanted the priesthood. And he went to Moses and Aaron, and I don't know if he asked for an election or just straight out asked to become a priest, but he was told no, and what did he do? He got mad, just like Cain. And he went and got 250 guys, and they tried to cause a church split. <laughs> they went against God's appointed leaders. They provoked the Lord. Look at the provocation here. It says that they said to Moses and Aaron, Okay, this is Korah and 250 men. They're all mad. You, Moses and Aaron, have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy. And by the way, just so you understand, we're in the dispensation of grace, the church age. This is the dispensation of law. And so it's a completely different setup here, but you gotta understand it in the right context, okay? And so they're saying to, to Moses and Aaron, all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. In other words, um, it's not just you, Aaron, and your descendants as priests. And so why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And when Moses heard it, he began to shout and yell and slander and speak evil and revile Korah. Is that what it says? No. You gotta love the meekest man on the face of the earth fell on his face, and so I love that. I love how Moses responded. You know why Moses fell on his face? Because he knew it's best just to let God fight your battles. Some of you right now are in a battle. Someone's coming after you. They're saying nasty things about you. Remember Titus, speak evil of no one. Let God fight your battles. Get in your prayer closet and get on your face before the Lord. And God knows how to intervene. And so God intervened. <laughs> wow, did he intervene. Again, we're very happy we live in the dispensation of grace and not law. And so this is what happened, look at this. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, the Hebrew word for the grave, King James, they went down alive into hell. And the earth closed over them. It's like, rip open, ah, fall down, right back and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Korah defied God's ordained authority, God's appointed authority. Do you think it ended well for him? Nope. And Jude, here's the point. Jude says to the Christians in the first century and to us today, hey, false teachers do the same thing. What do they do? They infiltrate churches and then they, they win the 
the trust of people. And the next thing you know, they're appointing themselves to positions of leadership and they're, they're sharing their heretical doctrines, their false teachings, right? What are they doing? They're defying the apostles' doctrine. If you're with me, say amen here. Listen to this. They're denying and defying the apostles' doctrine. Who's that? Peter, James, John, Paul, Matthew, the apostles' doctrine recorded in the New Testament for us. They're saying, no, don't listen to those guys. Listen to me. I had a dream. I have new revelation from God. Follow me or whatever they say. And they rejected the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And like Korah, I guarantee these guys in the first century did not end well with them when they died. And so here's my closing statement. How do you spot a false teacher? Number one. They're just like Cain. They approach God in their own way and not in God's prescribed way. Never forget Jesus, our blood sacrifice, who died for our sins and rose again. He's the only way to God. Number two, like Balaam, they're more concerned about wealth than the welfare of God's people. Be careful. And then number three, like Korah, they defy God's ordained authority and they appoint themselves to positions of leadership. And Jude said it, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it was applicable then, it's applicable now. And so we need to be careful. Amen, church family? Amen, thank God for his word.